Well, let me take just a moment and share with you. Um, a few moments ago, I alluded to how the Lord had blessed our church. Um, and we do have several folks who are with us for the first time today and some who haven't been here in a while. We're glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. But um, we have learned in this church that God is a big God. It's not just words to us, is it? We've experienced it. I told someone this week that what had happened in our church was a miracle. And they popped back really quick and they said, it was a miracle with that type of energy. And so to make a long story short, I'll give you the 30 second version. When we borrowed $1.2 million to build this building, we did it because we were absolutely convinced the Lord was leading us to do it. But it was a big, big step of faith. And um, we, we followed through with it. We borrowed the money. We built the building. And 12 months after we were in the building and had been here for a year, the Lord blessed us with an anonymous $1 million gift and paid it off. And to this day, I can honestly tell you, I don't know where the money came from. All I can say is God did it. And that's how God has been good to us here. So we are grateful. And I, I think there is some benefit when I, when I tell this story and, and I tell it fairly often because people are interested in hearing it. I never tell it to, um, bring any any attention to us or any glory to our church, because I'm going to tell you, God gets all the credit for this one. Amen. Uh, I don't even really want my name associated with this church. The Lord did this. This is his work. And uh, I just am so grateful to him. And today we're going to be talking about somewhat the, the um, wonderful, mighty God that we serve. Somewhat of an unusual title, I'm sure, for the sermon. The sermon itself will be unusual. I have a, a sermon illustration that I'll use and be talking about some things that you think, what in the world is wrong with this crazy man? He's lost his mind. He's talking junk this morning. I'm going to ask you just to stay with me, think with me, follow along with me. You'll hear me probably say several times, wait for it, wait for it. How many have seen that on Facebook? There'll be like a video or something. It's really a neat video, but you have to watch the first two or three minutes before you get to the end where the really important part is. And so that you'll know that something is coming that is important, they'll say when they post that, wait for it to let you know. So you won't give up and say, oh, this is no good after 30 seconds and turn it off. Well, I'll probably use that this morning several times, but I'd like for us to think this morning um, some people think it's painful to think. I think it's painful if you don't think. But um, I like for us to think and use our minds this morning and maybe allow the Lord to speak to our hearts um, along the Christmas theme, of course, as we work through this. Um, we have been opening our service, or before the service opens, we've been using for several months now this song, Take Me Back to Church. Uh, I love the song. I absolutely love the song. And it's such a wonderful song to kind of bring us together on Sunday mornings and then enter into our time of worship. 
But this morning I want to take us back, but I don't want to necessarily take us back to church right now, because uh, we're here, but I would like to take us back to school. Could everybody say, oh me, if you feel about school like I do. But I'm going to take us back to school today, and I want to share with you over the next uh, few short minutes some vocabulary words. How many of you remember vocabulary words? You were given a list of these words. You had to learn how to spell them. You had to learn what they meant. And then once you did that, uh, most likely you were going to read a story or something that had those words in it to tie it all together. Well, that's the approach I'd like to use this morning. And we're going to start out with, let's see, I've got four words that we're going to take a look at here. Four vocabulary words. The first of those is, we've already been singing about it today, and that is the word Yahweh. Now, if I were to ask you what the word Yahweh means, there might be some here who would know. So, Yahweh is simply the most basic name in Scripture, in Hebrew, for God. Yahweh. Later, the word Yahweh, as it's put in other languages, uh, is spelled differently, and so... We know the name better now as Jehovah. I can't take the time to explain. There's a very, very logical way how you move from one to another, but I don't have time to do that. But we, we sang about Yahweh. That is a biblical name. We also sang about Jehovah in one of the songs. That is the meaning of Yahweh. It's the same thing, Jehovah. And then there's the word Adonai which is another name for God in the scripture, and that is uh, primarily focusing on the fact that he is Lord. Now, Lord, in the scripture, um, some of you are going to be alarmed when I say this, but Lord in the scripture uh, throughout the Bible is not always a religious word. A Lord was somebody who was a, a, an owner of uh, properties, and if you worked for him, he was your Lord. He was your boss. But the word they used was Lord. And so even Jesus told parables and talked about the Lord. Not He wasn't talking about himself. He wasn't talking about God. He was talking about a man, the Lord. The Lord over this house and the Lord over that house. Most of the time that would be spelled in scripture as uh, L-O-R-D, lowercase, not capitalized. Every once in a while you might see... The first letter capitalized when you see the word Lord referring to a man. Um, and I'll say perhaps more about this in just a few moments. But um, in history, it was a common word. In fact, resources show that Caesar Augustus was referred to as Lord. Now, he didn't steal that from the Christians because Caesar Augustus is the one who ordered the census for the taxation to get Jesus to Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. So before Christianity was even um, rolling, if you will, the word Lord was being used. In fact, there are historical sources where Caesar uh, Augustus referred to himself as Lord and Savior. Now that sounds strange to us. But he was looked at as the man who came to, to bring us out of all of our problems and deliver us and give us freedom and make our lives better. And he referred to himself, as did several of the Caesars, as Lord. 
And he did particularly use the word Lord and Savior. It's interesting then that when Jesus came along, he began to be referred to as Lord in a much more serious way than had been used in the culture previous. And as you look in your Bible, you'll find out that the word Lord in our Bibles is capitalized, all four letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, the reason it's done that way in Scripture is to let us know that Lord, in all caps, is the same thing as Yahweh or Jehovah or Adonai. Lord, in all caps, is referring to God, not to some other person or, or being who claimed to be Lord. So I just wanted us to, to understand that. Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, Lord, all the same thing. I could have put God at the end of that, but that'd be kind of redundant, I guess. And then the next word we're going to look at after Yahweh is the word composer. Now, I have a reason for doing this, of course, but the word composer is not necessarily a biblical word or a scriptural word or a religious word. A composer is someone who writes music. Now, you've probably heard of Beethoven, Mozart, and Bach. Maybe you've heard of Handel. We were singing part of Handel's Messiah just a few moments ago. The Hallelujah Chorus was written by Handel. In, in composing music, I think we have to understand that somebody has to write that music. Somebody had Handel, in fact, when he wrote the um, Messiah. The, is that the name of it, Tony? The whole musical is called The Messiah. And then the Hallelujah Chorus is a portion we're most familiar with. But when he wrote that, it was 259 pages long with all of these notes that looks like all kind of scribbling on it. You can see pictures of it even today if you look it up. 259 pages long. He was the composer that sat down and wrote all of that. And then, of course, it's distributed to musicians to sit down and play it. In front of the uh, person... Um, who is actually doing this is someone called a conductor. Now notice the distinction between the composer and the conductor. The composer writes the music and puts it on a sheet of paper or sheets of paper. The conductor is the one, excuse me, somebody else easily, most of the time probably, who stands in front and actually conducts and sets the tempo, shapes the sound, controls the interpretation and the pacing of this particular piece of music. Now, I'd like to give you an illustration this morning that's very important to what I'm going to be sharing with you from Scripture. I think all of us know what a conductor is, right? And I think all of us now know what a composer is to get it in our minds. Composer's not the guy who does this. The composer's the guy who sits down at a desk and writes all the music out. He writes the music. Like an author writes a book, he writes it out. The composer writes the music, the conductor stands in front of an orchestra like you seated here and conducts, and the people who are there with different instruments or vocals, then they, they give meaning to, they bring that, what's on that page to life. Now, I had an interesting, um, experiment this week as I was preparing for this. And I began to take a look at different conductors on, on, online. 
and how they conducted and how they did things. And I'm not talking about, um, I'm talking about the, the big boys, you know, the ones that, uh, uh, Bernstein, is that his name? And, and the guys who, who, who are on stage. And as a matter of fact, I noticed one thing very interesting. In one of these concerts, there must have been 200 musicians there in this orchestra and thousands of people in this concert hall and everybody's ready to go. And the conductor walks in and the people went crazy. I'm thinking, wait a minute, it's the musicians <laughs> with, with the talent and the sound and all of this. But when the conductor came in, man, the crowd stood to their feet and cheered and applauded. And he walked up there like he was somebody, you know. Uh, the conductor was very important. I didn't really give as much importance to the conductor as I should. But I began to notice as I looked at several different ones of them. That, for instance, if a man is conducting and he's doing something like this along with the music and the music is right with him, that's kind of unusual to see, really. It was much more common to see the conductor doing things like this and nothing happening until a second later when the musicians would respond. I want to give you an illustration of that because it's very important that we understand the difference between the composer and the conductor and what the conductor does is lead the others, but there's a little time lapse there. So I'm going, Nathan's going to help me here and I'm going to give him four beats and then he's to come in on the next third beat. Okay. Everybody with me? Let's, let's see if you. When I get to the third beat of the second measure, I want everybody to say yes. One, two, three, four. One, two. Okay, you did it. He did it. You with me? That, that happens simultaneously, right? Let's do it one more time. One, two, three, four. One, two. Okay. Now that, is that not the way we generally think that it works? In other words, I, the conductor does it. And that responds at the same time. It don't work that way in real life. It does not. As a matter of fact, do you know what? I mean, I'm watching the, the world's best conductors and the world's best orchestra. And do you know what some of it looked like? It looked like this orchestra was playing one thing and this conductor was doing something totally different. And they weren't even related to each other sometimes. I'm thinking this is weird. I mean, it's like these this conductors up there just doing his own thing and they're doing their own thing. It doesn't even look like they're connected. Uh, have you ever seen TV, on the TV sometimes the, 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 the man is talking on the screen? You see his mouth moving, but it's not matching the words. Isn't that aggravating? That's kind of the way it is with the conductor and the orchestra. He's saying one thing, but it takes a second to get it translated to them to where the sound is. So Nathan understands what we're doing here. So I'm going to give you now an illustration of the way this works in real life. Okay. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Did you get that? He didn't do it at the same time I did. Because the whole orchestra is watching and they're waiting on him for a cue. Tell us, Mr. Conductor, when to come in, how loud to be. And he's getting demonstrative and he's waving his arms and doing all kinds of things. One more time, Nate. One, two, three, 
four, one, two. Did you get that? You would think that the crash would come when I would be most demonstrative. But you watch the conductors. And a lot of times that's not the case. Because he's giving signals to them. He's giving instructions to them that don't happen in real time. There's always a little delay. And sometimes I was amazed at the delay that there is. It looks kind of humorous, to be honest with you, when you see it out of sync like that in real time. Wait for it. Wait for it. We'll get there. One more word, orchestrator. An orchestrator means... This is somebody who writes the music to be played by an orchestra. In some ways, it's the same thing as a composer. The orchestrator could take something that was written by the composer and adapt it and change it. He's the orchestrator to write music to be played by an orchestra. And that's kind of the musical slant because that's what I'm doing here. But now there's another definition I want to read to you. This is the important one. I'd like for you to think very carefully. It's broader. It means to organize or plan something that is complicated. Now, with those vocabulary words, Yahweh. Yahweh is a composer, a writer. Is he not? All scripture... Is given by inspiration of God. Amen. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We don't call this the prophet's words. We call this book whose word? God's word. He is the composer, if you will. He is the author of scripture. It's God's word. Now, he may have given, he may have dictated. That's a good word. He may have dictated. He gave the words. He, he, he is responsible for the information of what is in this book, but this is God's word. He is the composer, if you will. He's the writer. And then there is The conductor that we talked about here who actually stands there and gives signals and help. Uh, Take me to the next slide, please. Yahweh. Yahweh wrote the score. He wrote the script. He wrote the text when it comes to all things biblical. Amen? He's He's the author. He stands above all conducting. Is God above all? Is God directing the affairs of men, especially the men and women, boys and girls who will allow themselves to be directed? He stands above all, conducting and giving us direction. He is orchestrating in his timing the events, conditions, and performance and details in so many ways. In the Christian, I should say, in the Christmas narrative. And I'd like for you to think with me. Here's an example. Angels. Are there any angels active in the Christmas narrative in the scripture? 
I was amazed, to be honest with you. I took Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Luke chapter 1 and 2, and read through those. And do you know how many times I found that God sent an angel to somebody? Seven times. I couldn't believe it. I had to go back and double check it. Seven times in the Christmas narrative where God sent an angel. He sent an angel three times to Joseph. He sent an angel to Zacharias to let him know he was going to have a son, John the Baptist. He sent an angel to Mary and let her know she was going to give birth to a child, even though she was a virgin. He sent an angel to the shepherds. And then just a few minutes later, it would appear that he sent a multitude of the heavenly host there to be with the shepherds. Now, we might would wonder why. How did this happen? It's interesting to me in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 where the the book of Hebrews is written to explain to the readers that Christ, Jesus, is better than any other thing. Isn't it amazing how we as Christians and followers of the Lord, we get sidetracked. We lose sight of what the important thing is and get, get sidetracked by other things sometimes. Well, the... The people in the early church, some of them were getting sidetracked and they were making the law important and they were making uh, angels important. Some were worshiping angels, in fact. And the writer of Hebrews is going through in the book of Hebrews and the theme of, of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better than. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than angels. And with regard to that particular point, Hebrews 1 verse 6 says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, when God brings the firstborn, who's the firstborn? Hebrews 1 6, which has nothing to do with Christmas, most of us would think, says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, God says what? Let all the angels of God worship him. And so the Bible tells us in the gospel narrative, and suddenly there was with the host, a mighty heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And we read that and say, that's strange, you know. I mean, here's this angel there talking to the shepherds. And then all of a sudden, suddenly, there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly horse. Why did that happen? It happened because the conductor said, let all the angels of God worship him. This is a big deal. I've been waiting on this. The Son of God coming. B.C.A.D. Things are going to change. A new day is here. Let all the angels of God worship him. And Jesus, or excuse me, God is conducting, if you will. He's written the script, as we're going to see. He's written the script. He's told the story in the Old Testament of what is going to be. And now he's standing there directing. Okay, now it's your turn. Go, angels. At another time, you know what he did? He looked into... The heavens and said, you know what? These wise men from, from over here, I need to get him, them over here to where Jerusalem is. I know. He goes and he puts a star 
in the heavens to get the attention of the wise men and they follow that star to where Jesus is when the time was right. And on and on you can go with this. You see, the Bible says, bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his host, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Who was sang that song? I believe there are angels among us. That's not the right tune, but that's the words. Anybody remember that song? I believe there's angels among us. Billy Graham believed there was angels among us. He wrote a bestseller about that. Yeah, there's no reason not to believe that there are angels, biblically speaking. Well, there was another thing that happened I, I find interesting. Because in the Roman world, although it had happened before, it wasn't commonplace. And the Bible tells us that the, um, the emperor, Caesar Augustus, decided that there needed to be a census taken for the purposes of taxation. Hmm. Now, you see, it had already been stated in Scripture that Jesus was going to be born in a particular place. What was that place? Bethlehem. We'll read that in a moment. Let's see. The Lord says, okay, I need to get Mary and Joseph over here to Bethlehem. Hmm. Oh, I know. And he touches Caesar Augustus' heart. Caesar orders his census, which puts Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. You say that ain't going to happen that way. Listen, the Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turneth it whithersoever he will, just like the rivers of water. You see, we give God far too little credit, folks. We get upset and uptight about a whole lot of things we shouldn't be worrying about, we should be praying about. We should be crying out to God, Lord, please handle this, because all he's got to do is bring into existence and make make things like he wants them to be in particular situations. And sometimes he's waiting on us to do our part because you have not, because you ask not, the Bible says. This, this thing is far bigger and and more comprehensive, I think, perhaps, than we realize. But you wait for it. Wait for it. Next slide, please. Testimony of the prophets. I alluded to that just a moment ago. How that as we read the scripture, listen, I know people, I've heard people say this before. Well, I don't ever read the Old Testament. That's just under the law. I don't care about that. I'm going to stick with the New Testament. I'll tell you what. The Old Testament is just as much the word of God as the new is. And it is full. It is full of wonderful principles and help for us. So the testimony of the prophets is a a great help for us to understand. The Bible says concerning our faith, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner. Listen, you can't, you should not eliminate the prophets. The prophets are very important. And what they've said is very important. Relative to what we're talking about today, the first pillar in this 
in this building we're building, Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9, which obviously we're not going to read, but I'll help us out right quick for timing purposes. In Isaiah seven fourteen, the Bible says the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, when I look at this, I, I just, I don't know why I just see things, but the word sign means something, right? What is a sign? Something you can see. A sign's not worth a nickel if you can't see the sign, right? So the Bible says, the Lord himself will give you a sign, something you can see. And then he says, behold, which means what? Look at the sign. (laughs) Look. A sign is something you're supposed to see. And then it says, behold, look. Look at what? A virgin shall conceive. Now, if you think about what that really implies and what that really says, that's an attention getter. Virgins don't conceive. And this is, this is something that, that is in the Word of God. 700 years before Jesus is born. And the Bible says the Lord Himself will give you a sign, something you can see. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, call his name. His name is going to be Emmanuel, which is very significant. God with us. Isaiah verse chapter 9 verse 6 follows up on that. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called. And I love this verse. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, this baby born of a virgin. That's what he's going to be called. Wow. Listen, folks, that's a really big deal. Another pillar in this temple has to do with where he's going to be born. Micah 5 verse 2, which says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah... Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We got some people here today in their 80s. I don't know if we got anybody in their 90s or not. I know we got several in their 80s. But you know what? You may think you're old, but you're not from everlasting. Everlasting? This baby that is born is not just a baby. This baby is going to be called Wonderful Counselor. This baby is going to be called Mighty God. This baby is going to be called Everlasting Father. This baby is going to be called Prince of Peace. Another pillar, and this will, I really have to make this one quick because we could spend months on this. Book of Daniel. As you've read through the book of Daniel, you'll be reminded that the Lord is revealing to Daniel human history before it happens. World empires are going to come, God says to Daniel. And he records these. 
Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of time is given to him in the book of Daniel. And then the Medo-Persian Empire, Darius and Cyrus were the kings, and they're talked about in the book of Daniel. And then the Greek Empire is talked about, and he's not called by name, but all of us know who that is from history. It's Alexander the Great. Now, what does he have to do with this whole narrative? We'll talk about that just in a moment. And then following him were the Romans, the Roman Empire. And here's the deal. Bible scholars have long agreed that when you look at the big picture here, studying the book of Daniel and other passages of Scripture, that the Lord had a particular time that he saw was right for all of this process to begin. The Bible tells us that in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of the time had come. How many have heard that? Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. So we've been sitting here, Isaiah 700 years. He's prophesied this is going to happen. Micah comes along 500 years ahead of time, says it's going to happen in Bethlehem. And we just keep waiting and we keep waiting. When's the time going to be right? Along comes Alexander the Great. He conquers the world. Something affects the culture worldwide. And so much so that there is a name for it. Leslie, what is it? Remember? You've talked about it. The Greeks. Hellenism. I remember she made a comment to me about that. We talked about it in Bible study one night and she saw it on the news or something later. She said, I heard that word again. Hellenism. It's Greek culture. Perhaps the most important, prolific part of that, at least in my mind, is the fact that people all over the world became familiar with the Greek language. We're talking now about the time of Christ. Everywhere you went, Greek was spoken. Then the Romans came in, and we have the Roman Empire, and what's most notable about the Romans is their building expertise. And they made roads. Boy, did they ever make roads. All over the known world, Roman roads are to be found. So you've got the Romans who built the roads. You've got the Greeks who were responsible for the language. And you know what? If you've got roads and travel and commerce and you can talk to each other, things are beginning to shape up and the Lord says, okay, now it's time. And so... He brings all this together when the fullness of the time had come. As Bible scholars have agreed, boy, this just made perfect sense when you look at that for this to be the time. In Malachi, as we put the final pillar there, this is by no means final, but it's the last one I have time to share. Chapter 4 of Malachi, the last chapter in the Old Testament. The last five verses in the Old Testament. Get this. The last five verses in the Old Testament talk about the coming of John the Baptist, the one that's going to come prepare the way in the spirit and power of Elijah, and also the Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Wow. And then there's 400 years of silence. Nothing. No prophets speaking, nothing recorded. 
That's known as 400 years of silence until the birth of Jesus. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It's like he's standing there and he's directing this whole thing. Just according to his timing, when he wants this to happen, he brings that person in. When he wants something else to happen, he brings that person in. When he wants that star in the sky, he puts it out there. He just has that ability because he's Yahweh. He's the great orchestrator. He can put all things together and he does all things well. I've been saying to you, wait for it. Yahweh, the master orchestrator, orchestrates perfectly the events that changed the world from B.C. to A.D. He gave details in the book he himself composed. Dozens of details, hundreds of years before it ever happened. He said a virgin would conceive. He said a son would be born. He said Bethlehem would be the place. He touched the heart of the king to do a rare thing in those days. Order a census and a taxing. He sent an angel to Zechariah. He sent one to Mary. And because he knew Joseph was struggling, he sent an angel to Joseph. You think Joseph was struggling? You bet he was struggling. His espoused wife. I mean, get this. This is, this is biblical language, okay? I'm not trying to be cute. I'm just trying to get us to think. His wife that he had not been with yet was great with child and people were talking and he was bothered. What am I going to do? As a matter of fact, he was so bothered, the Bible says, that he was minded to put her away privily. He couldn't figure this out. It, it, and, and the talk must have been and, and the, the agony of going through this is it, just almost more than he could handle. And may I say to you that when you are going through something and you feel like it's more than you can handle, God is aware of it. And the Lord looked down on Joseph in his, his, his agony of heart and wondering what to do and struggling with this decision. And the Lord said, Gabriel, go pay him a visit. Gabriel comes to him and says, Joseph, fear not to take unto you Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. You're going to bear a son, you're going to call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. Oh, isn't the, isn't the Bible beautiful? And time after time after time, Yahweh, the master orchestrator, is working things out. According to his own plan, which he laid out in his own book, bringing to pass those things that have been long foretold. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. He sent an angel with a message to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joys, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. 
Then he sent the multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. He put a star in the heavens to lead the wise men to the birthplace of Jesus. He warned Joseph that Jesus' life was in danger and that they should flee to Egypt. And when the danger was over, he sent an angel to tell him they could go back to Israel now. And I've been saying all along, wait for it. We have to understand today that if Yahweh had the ability to orchestrate what we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes, he's got the ability to look down into your heart and your life and your world and help you with anything that comes your way. You think you're struggling. You think you can't go any farther. You think you can't handle it anymore. You think it's bigger than you could ever deal with. I want to tell you, if you'll put your hand into the hand of the master, he will bless you. He will minister to you. He will help you. And he will work it out in your behalf. Because that's who he is. That's what he wants to do. If our musicians would come. The Bible tells us we should cast our care where? On the Lord. The Bible says, come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find help in time of need. The Bible says, and I'm going to go ahead and translate this for you in the tense that to save some time. The Bible says, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, and knock and keep on knocking. We read, ask, seek, knock. But in the original, the tenses say this is a continual process. Asking and seeking and knocking. We pray a little prayer, two or three minutes, and go our way and think we've done our thing. Oh, the Bible tells us we're supposed to be knocking and seeking and asking and crying out to God and not giving up and not losing hope. He wants us to do that. If he can orchestrate all that has been, all that's been shared today with this celebration we call Christmas, this world-shaping event, B.C. and A.D., if he can handle all that, he can handle anything in your life. But he wants our love, and he wants our devotion, and he wants our obedience. Far too many times we have a Santa Claus syndrome when it comes to God. Like all we've got to do is make up our list. And he's going to give us whatever we desire. But that's, that's not the way the Bible explains God. You see, there's some, there's some very, go ahead and put the next slide up for the incarnation. That's, that's the capstone of all that we've talked about today. But if the great orchestrator, Yahweh, if he can do all of that, most of us know he's done it for us before. He's, He's intervened in our lives. He's met our needs. He's answered our prayer. Listen, when I think about what God did right here in this church, I mean, I've told you all the story before. There's been times I stood in this tobacco field out here and cried like a baby and begged God not to make us do this. And that's the honest truth. I can't tell you the numbers of times. I knew how silly that was. I knew how outlandish it was. I've literally wept and asked God not to keep pushing me forward with this. 
That's why I can be so thankful today when I look back and I can use those two words in Scripture that are so prominent and so very important, but God. A lot of times in Scripture you read where somebody was in trouble, but God. Somebody had a need, but God. Somebody was hurting, but God. That's the way God is. If we'll call on him, trust him, it's more than a Santa Claus. He's not a Santa Claus. He's a savior. He's not a Santa Claus. He's a provider. He's not a Santa Claus. He's Yahweh, the master orchestrator who can do anything in the world that, that he wants to do for us. If we'll put our hands in his hands, abide in me. He says. If you'll abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done. Now that's not a, that's not a Santa Claus list. Because if you understand that verse, you're putting your hand, you're putting your life into his hands. And you're saying, Lord, have your way in my life. Listen, the Lord's Prayer. This came to me just yesterday. Well, I was, I was thinking about the sermon. I thought, now the Lord teaches us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right? All my life, I've always prayed that. And, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I want your kingdom to come in America. And I want your kingdom to come over this earth. And I want your will to be done in America, Lord. I want your will to be done on this earth. And yesterday, for the first time in my life, I think I really understood what it's talking about. The Lord is saying that I should be praying that his kingdom would come here. And that his will would be done here. Because I don't have any, I don't have any great influence on what happens in America or the world. But I have a lot of control over what happens in here. If I surrender my life to the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says when we'll live that way. If we'll live our lives in surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're going to see him doing a whole lot of this in our lives. Guiding us. Pointing us in certain directions. Giving us things to do that we recognize are from him. Of course, the other side of that coin is how many times has he given us things to do, spoken words to us, and tried to point us in a certain direction, and we didn't want to go. Now, Tony's sitting over here at the piano. Raise your hand, Tony. This guy's a high school band teacher, band director. Both. Both. (laughs) And Lord willing, on Thursday night, I'm going to be watching him direct his band and perform. I'm looking forward to that. But I know him well enough to know if he's got somebody sitting back there in that orchestra or in that band and they're not willing to do what he wants them to do, what's going to happen? I mean, he's not going to tolerate it. As a matter of fact, today when he bought me these batons, I asked him if I could borrow a baton. He bought me about five. And I got to look at him. I thought, I better not. I better be careful with these things. And then Nathan comes up to me and says, those things are expensive. You better be careful. <laughs> but I'm thinking. And then he says, oh, don't, don't worry about it. I've broken a lot of them, you know. And I remember my high school band teacher. Years ago, I've seen him get so aggravated. The people there, he'd take that baton and crash it down on top of that music stand. And it'd break in half. Well, 
You know what, if the Lord's trying to get us to do something, He's trying to direct the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, the Bible says. And if He's trying to order our steps in one direction and we're going in another direction, pardon my grammar, but we ain't going to be happy. When we are children of God, we're going to have to learn to let Him order our steps and be led by Him and do things His will, His way, His timing. Today, as we close with this song, I'm going to ask you to I think it'd be good if we just had everybody. Everybody just come, and there's there's no trickery here. If you haven't been here before, this is no trickery. This is just, this is an altar, and it's a place where we come and stand and pray and commit our ways to the Lord. And to end this service today, I'd like for us to sing this song, God Will Make a Way Where There Seems to Be No Way. And then I'm going to pray before we're dismissed. So don't, don't feel like... We're trying to get you somewhere where we can do something to you. We're not. I'm just, I'm just wondering if we could reverence the Lord and gather together as we close this service. As we sing, would you stand with me? And would you gather with me here as we prepare to pray? God will make a way where there seems to be. for your word which is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path I'm thankful for Christmas and what that means to us and how you have been so actively engaged in bringing about the events that we 
have highlighted today. It's wonderful. It's encouraging. It's exciting to think about you flinging a star in the heavens for the wise men and sending angels to visit and turning the heart of a king to do something that you needed done. You're an awesome God. But Lord, as, as encouraging, as beautiful as that is, if we lose the fact in our own minds that you're still a God who is able, still a God who has not changed, your word says you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord, your God. I change not, the word of God says. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us understand that when we have situations, circumstances, problems, even catastrophes, when we have times when we're struggling, help us to turn to you. Help us to cry out to you. Help us to call on you. Lord, talking to each other doesn't accomplish a whole lot sometimes. But if we get on our knees and cry out to you, we would be amazed at what would happen in our lives and in our church. So it's my prayer today, Lord, that you would open our eyes to who you are. You are the master orchestrator. Where there are things that are difficult and hard to handle, you can handle them if we'll call on you. You can touch people's lives. You can turn them around. Lord, you can break addictions. There is not an addiction that anybody has that you can't break it. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts and open our eyes and help us to understand who you are. Lord, you can change the attitudes in the hearts of our children. You can change the hearts and attitudes of employers. You can change the hearts and attitudes of anyone around us. If we'll just surrender our lives to you, you'll melt our hearts. You'll draw us nearer to yourself. Lord, you'll meet our needs. Lord, you'll be, you'll be so good to us, we will be amazed and astounded at what happens. When we turn and seek your face with our heart, soul, mind, and body. Thank you, Lord. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and all these other things will be added. Now, if there's anybody in this building today, Lord, that doesn't know you. If they're not saved, if they're not born again, if they've not looked to you and said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. I want to surrender my life to you. I want to go to heaven. I want to be a better daddy. I want to be a better father. I want to be a a better mother. I want to be a better wife. Lord, just help us to understand that you're a God who is able to work in our hearts and lives. Just like we've illustrated from your word today. You're not a 10 million mile away, God. You're a right here, right now, God. So I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in the hearts and lives of those who were gathered here today as we sing one final time. Oh, our God,
you all for coming. Hope you have a blessed Sunday. Hallelujah.